I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. What houseplant would you not want to be without? I think for me, it would be my Tradescantia zebrina, which is an absolutely beautiful plant. The really rich colours of the foliage are gorgeous. But also one of my favourite things is I can always mess around with it, just clip little bits off to keep it all bushy. And of course, you can use those clipped off bits, just pop them in a bit of soil or a glass of water, and it'll create its own new plant. Because you do have to replace them after a couple of years, but the plant that you've replaced it is, is basically its own children, its own little clones. So I've had that plant on the go for many years, and I think that's probably my favourite. What about you? Oh, for me, it's a pinguicula. I've got this lovely little pinguicula. It's one called Tina. It's a butterwort. It's, so this is a carnivorous plant, lives in bogs, and I've grown it in a teacup on my kitchen windowsill for about the past five years now. And it has these lovely kind of buttery, greeny leaves, which are a little bit sticky, so it traps the fungus gnats that we all have as houseplant growers. And this plant turns the tables, and as soon as the fungus gnats land on its leaves, they stick, and it eats them. Brilliant, just desserts. And it turns the nutrition that they provide into beautiful, purpley, mauvey kind of flowers, and it just sits there on my kitchen windowsill, behaving itself really well. And it's, yeah, it's a good doer. I like Tina. So today I am delighted to welcome back the RHS's Jenny Laville to discuss a fan favourite, houseplants. As the surrounding world is looking a little bleaker, it gets colder every day and darker outside, we wanted to discuss how to best turn your home into a verdant oasis. Welcome Jenny. Thank you Gareth, I'm very glad to be back. I have to say, as a houseplant enthusiast bordering on addict, I'm very much looking forward to what we have in store today. We'll be chatting about low-maintenance plants, which I've been writing about recently for the RHS website, as well as the best climbers to grow indoors. We're also diving into the houseplant crazes throughout history and hearing from author Alice Vincent on the role houseplants played in her own gardening journey. You're listening to Gardening with the RHS with me, Jenny Lavelle. And me, Gareth Richards. In the horticultural world, we often hear the phrase, choose the right plant for the right place. And of course, that works for indoors as well. You know, it's also about knowing how much light, how much humidity or how much heat a particular spot in your house gets. So, for example, if you've got a very sunny and hot windowsill, you might consider growing succulents like echeverias, which are these wonderful little architectural plants. They look almost like metallic propellers and come in different shades of sort of metallic-y pewters and almost reddish. And Or if you've got a damp and dark bedside table, maybe consider golden pothos, Epipremnum aureum, takes quite a lot of shade. 
has lovely light yellowish leaves and it will really brighten up any kind of dark corner or if you've got somewhere really dark try the zz plant Samia Kulkas semifolia, which is amazingly tolerant of low light. I've seen them grow almost almost in the dark for years on end. But just remember, if you are growing a plant in that kind of condition, it's not going to be growing very much, so don't water it too much. But beyond that, I'd also like to think about choosing the right houseplant for the right type of plant mum or plant dad. So Jenny, I know you've been looking into top picks for the lower maintenance growers, plants that can thrive in student accommodation or offices. Can you tell us a few of your favourites? Absolutely. One of my favourite is Lucky Bamboo. It looks incredible and it's so easy to grow. You just have to put it in water or vase. Yep. For some reason, I have quite a lot of bottles of gin, empty <laughs> bottles of gin I, I use. Um, and they look amazing, especially if you group a few of them together. Very funky, very easy to look at. Nice. After. And of course, if you need to move it, you can tip the water out go where you need to go and then refill the bottles. Absolutely, it's a no-mess, great choice for mm. a fun plant. Then, of course, there's the cactuses, all the cactuses yes. and the succulents. A jade plant is a great choice as well. Lovely fleshy leaves, mm. very, very green, yep. loves a bit of sun, yep. very hard to kill. <laughs> I bet I could. <laughs> um, and, of course, there's always the ivy. Heterohelix, yes, classic. Yes, real classic. Yeah, and there's a reason it grows so successfully with so much neglect. Yes, and so little light as well. It's a really good one for those dark corners. Exactly. So I think that those kind of things, and they can they can cover, like you say, the dark corners, but also scramble over tall shelves. A student room can also, it can be like one small window, so light can really yeah. be an issue. And that's where the good old ivy really comes to the front. Absolutely. And we've got a brilliant plant in the office which just absolutely refuses to die. I'm, I'm amazed by this plant's power, which is this aglaonema, the Chinese evergreen. And we've got one in a huge pot. And it's just the most amazing leafy, green verdant thing that has these beautifully patterned sort of silvery grey and green leaves and I think if that can survive there it can survive anywhere and I, I'm just amazed at some of these plants powers of survival. And in a big office space like that it's a great opportunity to grow stuff you can't grow at home just yes. for size. Yeah, I mean yeah. that plant it's huge and they often can get the old aspidistras the very traditional cast iron plants they can get really big mm -hmm. and an office is a real opportunity to explore that. Yeah. And of course, you can always put it in a really funky container as well. Absolutely. So. And there's tons of studies actually about how seeing plants in your work environment will improve productivity and improve mental health. I think the science around improving air quality is a little bit less clear cut, but there's mm. some really good science. We've covered this on the podcast before about about how just seeing that level of greenery doesn't lift people's mood. Absolutely. There's lots of very small studies that suggest things like, you know, it increases productivity by 15%, mm. decreases sick leave mm. by 40%. And these are big claims. But the science seems to generally back up the general principle of biophilia. We love to be around green things. We love to be near plants. And that increased mood adds to our well-being, which does make us happier. It makes us more productive and it makes us less likely to get sick and ill. What's not to love? But have you got any care tips for how to really get the best out of your houseplants? I think I always try to think about how I water them and the water that I mm. use. I tend not to use straight from the tap because yep. a lot of plants don't like that. Yep. Even if it's a case of just leaving the um, water, tap water yeah, out for a little yeah, yeah. bit so all that chlorine can dissipate mm -hmm. just for a day. And the temperature as well because in the winter, you know, tap water can be pretty, pretty chilly. Yeah. I think some plants also prefer it if you can use rainwater. So mm. maybe if you can have some rainwater, maybe bring it in, like you say, bring yeah. it to the right temperature. And of course, don't water your plants if you have a water softener 
because they don't like the salt. Brilliant tip, yes. So maybe think about how you water them as well as how often, which of course most of us do a little bit too much. Yeah, I've killed lots of plants through overwatering. Or the thing that gets me, I think, with my house plants is I let them get too dry and then I really soak them mm. and the plant kind of goes into shock and maybe some of the some of the roots have died and it can't absorb all of that water. So I think it's it's about getting consistency, isn't it, in your watering and kind of looking out for them, doing that finger test to feel the feel the moisture of the compost. Absolutely. And when we're talking about water also, the other top tip I'd definitely recommend is misting. Mm. I never used to do it and now I find it's really been an advantageous thing to do for my plants. And it's quite a nice thing to do as well, isn't it? It's You feel quite zen when you're just sort of misting away on your house plants. So, yeah, you feel like you're really looking after them yeah. and you're just misting a little bit. But <laughs> they do love it and they will repay you with beautiful, happy yes. foliage. One tip that I like is if you live in a really hard water area, maybe use your ironing water, your distilled water for misting, because otherwise you can end up with little bits of lime scale on your plants, and that's that can be a bit unsightly. That's a great idea. And it's also reusing water, which is a really positive thing to be doing generally, <laughs> isn't it? So if you're upping your game as a houseplant owner, as a plant parent, what's the next level plant do you think that you could step Ooh. up to? Well, one plant that you quite often see at the moment over the winter in, in garden centres is a cymbidium orchid. Now, they really take orchids up to the next level. We're all used to sort of moth orchids. You know, you have that sort of 30, 40 centimetre spike of flowers if you're lucky. But then with a the cymbidium, you can have sort of up to 60 centimetres of these beautiful, beautiful orchid flowers. They have these long, strappy leaves that look almost like a little mini formium. And they, they are not actually that difficult to grow. You just have to remember a few things. So they need a bit of a cool rest in the autumn. So you can you grow them inside over the winter and the spring, and then you put them out over the summer and the early part of the autumn. As the nights get cooler in September, they get a little bit of a chill, and that initiates the flowering. And, you know, it's a fantastic thing to grow. If you, if you fancy a challenge, then, yeah, definitely give cymbidiums a try. But whether you're a novice or expert grower, there really is a houseplant for everyone. And it seems that these days more and more of us are feeling the love for the houseplants. Absolutely. You know, in recent years, there's been this massive houseplant boom. Sales of houseplants increased by 50% between 2016 and 2019, according to the National Gardening Association. And then in 2020, when COVID hit, there was another big surge. Bedrooms, living rooms and kitchens have really become indoor jungles. However, as author and social historian Catherine Horwood points out, this isn't the first houseplant craze and probably not the last. So next up, Catherine's here to give us an inside look into the history of ever-changing houseplant trends. Well, houseplants have been grown indoors forever, basically, <laughs> um, if, you, if you look abroad. But in the UK and Britain... It, I think we can definitely say that from the 17th century onwards, we know that plants were being brought indoors. And that was mainly to scent the home, because if you think of how unhygienic, how smelly homes were in those days, people were doing everything they could to, to sweeten the houses. So they brought in things like um, rosemary and lavender and herbs, basil, not just for the pot, and they were called pot herbs, but to, to scent the home as well. It was popular to grow things in, indoors, but tricky. It was quite tricky because they, at that point they didn't know, it seems amazing to us now, but it, they didn't realise that plants needed light 
And so there was actually a recommendation that plants should be brought in, maybe displayed in the fireplace, particularly in the summer, obviously, when the fireplace was empty, but taken out once a week to get a bit of sun. So poor plants, I wonder how they survived that. From the 17th century into the 18th century, it was mainly still scented plants, but decorative as well. But quite often they'd be displayed um, on windowsills, small floral plants that would be brought in when they were in flower and then taken out again um, once they'd finished flowering. But once you get into the 19th century, everything changes. And that's because by the, the middle of the 19th century, you have changes in social mobility, you have advances in technology, and you have the rise of social media of its day, and that was printing. The technology was the Wardian case, which allowed plants to be brought from all over the world, which they hadn't been before. And social mobility, millions were moving from the country into cities because of the Industrial Revolution, and they wanted greenery in their homes. So it was this three-way combination, I think, that caused an explosion of interest in, in house plants in the mid-19th century. In the 19th century, again, the home, the homes are cold. They're also pretty dirty, particularly the ones in the cities. They've got the smuts, which come from coal fires. Uh, so there are this heavy drapery, so they need to grow plants that don't mind a bit of shade, don't mind a bit of cold. So what do they go for? Ferns. And ferns were the big craze of the, of the mid 19th century. So much so that the railways, which of course were just expanding as well, used to lay on weekend excursions to take Londoners down on trains, down to the North Downs with their baskets and trowels to dig up ferns and bring them home. And I mean, we can't bear to think of it now, but this was you know, a very, very popular weekend outing in the mid 19th century. Luckily, in 1851, the Glass Tax Act had been repealed, which meant that the price of glass suddenly plummeted. And so people were able to, if you had the money, you could add a conservatory to your home and you could grow plants inside these, protected from the, the smog outside. But even if you couldn't afford that or didn't have the space, you could have a little mini conservatory in your own home. And there was an absolute boom. Certainly all middle-class homes would have had some sort of display stand. Quite often it combined an aquarium as well. So it would, the base would have fish swimming around and, and then above they'd have their ferns or their crotos or coleus or all these exotic new plants that were coming into the country that people wanted to have, must-haves. But as anybody who's used or tried to grow plants in a terrarium, it's not that easy to get it absolutely right. And nurseries actually did quite well. Even in the books would tell them, if something dies, just take it out and replace it. Well, as you get towards the end of the 19th century, tastes in decor, in, in interior decor, begin to change. We're now into the period of William Morris, and the interiors of houses weren't as, as sort of overwhelmingly heavily draped as they were. There was a move sort of torn to let a bit of light in. Rooms were actually painted white, quite amazing. And 
larger statement plants started becoming more popular, such as the Kentia palm, the, the terrariums, the ferns sort of went out. Gertrude Jekyll really did not approve of having ferns indoors. She, she thought it was very poor taste. So there was, a, there was a definite move away from too much to really playing it down. It's quite strange. After the First World War, there is definite, definite death of houseplants in the home. When I was researching for my book, Potted History, I was looking for illustrations from the 20s and 30s, and I really struggled to find pictures of in interior decors that had houseplants in. It's very strange that the odd cactus would, would pop up, Bulbs, of course, there were bulb people would still grow their bulbs and put them under the bed before Christmas and then bring them out. But that, that was sort of it. I think partly because people no longer had gardeners, they were doing everything themselves. Again, tastes in interior decorations changed. And it it's just, it's a rather sad period for houseplants. Thank goodness the next revival comes after the Second World War, particularly um, African violets, Santapolia became enormously popular. I'm sure so many people can remember their, their mothers, their grandmothers, having them on a north-facing windowsill. Um, they're not fashionable. I think they're due for a revival. The taste for houseplants is, is mirrored by what's going on in terms of interior decoration. And when you get into, say, the 70s and 80s, suddenly it's all about flowers. It's all about tied bunches. It's the, I mean, the 80s and the 90s are the times that you can go to a supermarket and you can buy a tied bunch and take it home, pop it in a vase, and it's a cheap way of cheering up your home. And I think people thought, houseplants? Why do I need houseplants? Because I can, I can get cut flowers and they're cheaper. But then micropropagation took off. And now, if you think about it, at this time when you could buy your tied bunch, now it costs the same as a bunch of flowers to go into a supermarket and buy an orchid. And I may say an orchid that you can get to flower year after year after year with very little work. The strange thing is, everybody thinks this craze for houseplants is something new. It's not new. <laughs> and you know what's causing it? It's those three things that happened in the 19th century as well. It's changes in social mobility. It's these changes in, in techniques, propagation techniques. And it's just, it's advances in social media. <laughs> now, we know what the social media is. I'll come back to that. But it's social mobility. It's not people moving into the cities, but it's people who can't afford to buy homes. So they have flats instead. And also rented flats so often, so they're having to be on the move. It's very hard to take a garden with you, but you can take houseplants with you. And also, they just fit perfectly into the Instagram square. So for people who photograph their food and their cats, what better than to photograph a, a perfect houseplant that you're, you're really proud of? And it is just astonishing how in, in the last 10 years particularly, 
sales of houseplants have just rocketed among young people and it's 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 marvelous it's absolutely marvelous indoors i can't imagine not having plants it brings the garden inside for me i haven't counted how many plants i've got <laughs> i'm looking at the moment at a medium-sized piece lily but uh, no i've always got plants all all over the place to me it's like you know a, a house isn't a home without books well i like books and plants Thanks there to Catherine. That was really interesting, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Incredible to find out why the houseplants have gone in and out of fashion and how it's connected to mm. social change. And yeah, nothing new under the sun. No. But yeah, interesting that people are turning to houseplants because they feel they don't have the access to outside space and that shows you that we have this innate kind of desire for greenery, like, like you were saying about biophilia. And it's also kind of encouraging to think that actually we have more houseplants available to us now yeah. than we ever have in history. Mm. And also the reasons behind f proper favourite houseplants like the, uh, what was the one she mentioned, the violet? African, African violet. violet, yeah. And why that was suddenly so popular mm. and the ferns and the trends and, and how that's just sort of fashions are always constantly changing and keeping us on our toes, which is fun. Absolutely. So if you want to delve deeper into the stories behind our houseplants, take a look at Catherine's book, Potted History, How Houseplants Took Over Our Homes. We've included a link in the show notes. From Victorian ferns and coleus to modern-day fiddly figs and peace lilies, houseplants come in so many forms and in all shapes and sizes. And one thing I know you love, Gareth, are climbing and trailing houseplants. So can you tell us about some of the ones that you have at home? I have a lovely little plant called String of Hearts, Serapegia linearis subspecies woodyi. But yeah, I think String of Hearts is a bit of a nicer name. It's this fantastic little trailing plant that can make the most incredible waterfall of tiny little silvery grey mottled leaves. And it has these little kind of almost like a old-fashioned pipe flowers, little pinkish pipe flowers as well. And it just scrambles around the bookcases and it does its thing. It doesn't take much light, doesn't need much water. And it's just a beautiful way to kind of add that slightly different dimension. I think climbing and trailing houseplants are a really, really good way to kind of up your houseplant ante, really. It gets you looking up, doesn't it? Mm. It's very nice. And of course, it's a bit different up there at the top of the room where all the heat goes. Mm. Does that affect what you're choosing? You do want to make sure you pick the slightly more drought tolerant ones, absolutely, because they are, they are easier to miss. But luckily, there are plenty that are pretty forgiving. So another one with a terrible Latin name, Shindapsus pictus argyreus, or satin pothos. That has, again, it has marbled leaves. They're kind of heart-shaped. And that will kind of tumble over your bookcases and provide that kind of verdant curtain. And it gives you that kind of rainforesty effect. How do you support those tumbling leaves? Do you try and train them? Can you do that in, in, indoors? You can. You can kind of... Some, sometimes people will use little hooks in the wall or in, in the bookcase, you know, the kind of stuff you get for pinning up Christmas decorations. Like They can be quite useful. I mean, the main thing I think you have to watch out for is that the weight of the pot balances the weight of the plant so if your plant starts to grow and get lots of leaf on it don't have it just sat in a plastic box 
particularly when they dry, they become quite light. So, you know, you want a, a nice solid terracotta pot to kind of counterbalance it. That's a really good top tip. You've just reminded me, I've got a plant that I've trained using those clips. Mm -hmm. I've stuck them to the my outside of my shower cubicle. And so when I'm in a shower, I can see just jungle. Brilliant. Like pretend you're on a Timothée advert. Yeah, it's ex exactly that. I'm like <laughs> mining class in I want to be a celebrity. It's the whole rainforest shower. It's lovely. And I'm far from the only one that's found joy and beauty when growing inside. In Rootbound, Rewilding a Life, author and podcaster Alice Vincent writes, All that I knew is that it gave me pure enjoyment that I'd not found elsewhere. To indulge in plants was to ask dozens of excitable questions about how and why the plants were doing what they did. I wanted to know the answer. Today, Alice, who is also the author of Why Women Grow, Stories of Soil, Sisterhood and Survival, is back on the show to share her journey, cultivating plants in her London flat and to give us her outlook on our current houseplant fixation. So on paper, in my mid-twenties, my life looked pretty great. I had a nice partner. I, we had somewhere to live. We went on cool holidays. I was a music journalist. You know, I was in theory, doing stuff well, but actually behind the scenes, it wasn't all going so well. My relationship ended up breaking up quite suddenly. I didn't have anywhere to live. I was really doubting the career that I'd spent 10 years trying to have and something else. I needed something else. And that was, I think, why... I found gardening so fascinating and the outside world so fascinating because it didn't demand anything of me. I lived in a world that was really, really demanding. I didn't sleep very much. I partied quite hard. I had to endlessly turn up and show up and put on a face and plants didn't need any of that. They just were and I just had to bear witness. I didn't know what an annual was. I didn't know what a perennial was. I didn't really understand how you contain a garden or what you should grow or how the seasons worked or what cycle of a life of a plant was. But I just found the whole thing completely mesmerizing. And I wanted to know not only how to grow things, but why they grew and when and what I could do to be part of it that time, that really nascent emergence into gardening went hand in hand with a burbling houseplant phenomenon, which was quite modest at the time. It wasn't sort of what happened maybe seven years later when the pandemic struck. But yes, I had cacti and I had succulents and I had golden pothos. And I really wanted to fill my home with these tiny sort of alien little creatures. And I found their care fascinating and they were somewhere between a sort of ornament and a living thing. But actually the first ones I was given came as sort of cuttings and small plants that were given as housewarming gifts. And that I think was probably the genesis of it for me. The trend sort of happened alongside it and I tuned into that. But really it was these very generous, very humble little gifts of money plants, which as I speak are still sitting above my head on a shelf now. And they are all offshoots of one that my grandfather grew about 50 years ago. Um, I've been sort of badly passed around the family. They're terribly neglected. But yeah, it went hand in hand. And to me at the time, I don't think I saw indoor gardening and outdoor gardening as two different things. It was just all plants. 
quite quickly, the house plants, those modest, tiny, little, generous cuttings expanded. And I had quite a lot of house plants, a combination of lots of trips to Columbia Road Market and propagating things and gifts and this general excitement over them. That by the time that I moved into my own place after that turbulence earlier in my life, I had this sort of quite large collection and I'd gone from a flat that actually was ideal situation for growing houseplants and I should have made more of it into one that was quite shady and low light and I really had to think about where these plants lived and how I looked after them and I sort of installed LED lighting and stuff and I had lots and lots of pothos cuttings trailing over my bookshelves and I had a ficus elastica in my bedroom and all these other things going on it was a really verdant space and then after that I moved again into a place that had more light but by that point I'd really I suppose edited my collection maybe I'd kind of peaked in my my collecting phase and I'd I'd shrunk it down to stuff that I just really cherished and so I've got a sort of five foot fiddle leaf fig tree I have a spider plant that I inherited from an old colleague when she went on maternity leave about three years ago now and it fittingly is very fertile and is always covered in its own offshoots I have a fern that was given to me by some of the women who worked in a collective that I interviewed for my most recent book, Why Women Grow. And I have that same ficus elastica that was in my bedroom in my old places in our bedroom now. And they, my partner and I sort of developed this habit of giving them names that were puns on sort of D-list celebrities from the 70s. So there's Christopher Figgins and Fenella Fielding and... Yeah, it's all quite silly. But yes, they've been with me quite a long time now. One of the key themes I wanted to explore in Rootbound, Rewilding a Life, which was a book I brought out a few years ago, was this connection between the millennial and Gen Z generations and a determination to create and embrace nature despite all of the constraints put on the lives that we leave. And that I mean that we were raised as children of the internet. We were raised with a fascination on technology and globalization and rapidity and instant gratification. And we were raised as a generation that was sort of wrenched away from nature. And yet we seek it out regardless. We don't have access to gardens in the same way that our parents did. We don't have access to the property ladder. We don't have stable lives or jobs we are kind of at the whims of the gig economy often. And yet, despite all of that uncertainty, we want to grow things. We want to immerse our hands in the soil. We want to be thrilled by the unfurling of a leaf. We want to tend something. I definitely think that houseplants are one of those trends that it is easy to dismiss as a kind of millennial fascination but the fact is that it's introduced huge numbers of people who do not have access to gardens or to land to growing and given them a garden of their own I don't think it's completely perfect I think there's a lot to be looked at the sustainability of houseplants but you could say that for the entire horticulture industry in general and ultimately I think that they don't always get the respect they deserve because they are very beautiful and very meaningful parts of people's lives. And it takes a lot of skills to look after them as well. So, you know, next time you see someone's beautiful indoor jungle, 
maybe think about it differently. Alice is the author of both Rootbound, Rewilding a Life and Why Women Grow, stories of soil, sisterhood and survival. She also hosts the wonderful Why Women Grow, the podcast. And you can find more information about all of this in our show notes. Well, that's about it for today. If you're feeling inspired to grow more within your home, but don't know where to start, the RHS website has a wealth of resources on houseplants. And if you're a member of the RHS, you can get free personalised gardening advice from our team of expert advisors. Also, next April, the RHS is hosting its first urban show in Manchester, dedicated entirely to growing in small spaces as well as growing inside. Tickets are available now. See our website for details. So from me, Gareth Richards. And me, Jenny Laville. Goodbye, and thanks for listening. I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine, and so much more. Terms and conditions apply.